Welcome to Bible study. Are y'all glad to be back? It's good to see so many new faces out here, faces we haven't seen for a while. Um, As you know, we're doing three different studies this year. So um, we're doing Jen Wilkins' study, Precept, and the No Homework study. Um, So women are going to be in three different places on the Sermon on the Mount. When we have the lecture, we're not always going to be where you are in your study, but we will cover the entire Sermon on the Mount. Um, We're pretty much following Jen Wilkins' study since she seems to have divided it up fairly evenly. We've got some new speakers for you this year, which I'm really excited about. Um, If you heard Kim this morning, you know that we've got no class next week because of Labor Day weekend. Except for my class, Precept, we're going to meet because we've got one extra lesson. So we will meet next week. Um, If you didn't get your Jen Wilkins book, Kim is ordering them and they should be in this week. So let's pray and get started. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given us. And we thank you for these beautiful words that you've given us from the Sermon on the Mount. Father, um, it's so wonderful that we can know your words and that we can apply your words to our lives and live them. And Father, we ask that you would help us in that because that's the hard part. Please um, be with us this morning as we're introduced to this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And what we're going to look at this morning is just kind of the who, what, when, where of the Gospel. What is the theme of Matthew? So we know the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew was written by Matthew, um, one of the 12 apostles. We know that because the early church fathers confirmed for us that it was written by Matthew, no matter, no matter what the Jesus Seminar has to say. Um, Matthew was a tax collector in Galilee. He lived and worked not far from where this sermon was preached. We know about tax collectors. The Bible always says sinners and tax collectors. They were despised by the people. They were despised because they were collaborators with the Roman occupation. They were taking money from the Jewish people and sending it to Rome. But they were doing more than that. They were also thieves. Um, Rome would tell them how much money they needed, but the people wouldn't have any idea. So the tax collectors would tell the people how much money they wanted, and anything extra they got to keep. So they were also thieves. Um, Mark and Luke record Matthew's name as Levi, which is really interesting. Either he had two names, Matthew Levi, or he changed his name after his conversion from Levi to Matthew. Um, But what I find interesting about it is that the name is Levi. Was he from the tribe of Levi? If he was, he was supposed to be dealing with the holy things of the temple, maybe even a priest. And here he was, a tax collector. So today, a lot of people think that Mark was the earliest gospel. Um, I don't know why they think that, because the first and second century church fathers said that Matthew was the first gospel written. Augustine, in the 4th century, said that the Gospels are in the Bible in the order in which they were written. Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. Um, Arrhenius, who was one of the early church fathers, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. He said that the Gospel of Matthew was written while Peter and Paul were still living. That means it was written before the year 62 A.D., So very close to the time these events actually happened, possibly a lot earlier than that. 
The early church fathers also said the Gospel of Matthew was written in Aramaic, which is a language similar to Hebrew, and it's a language that the entire Middle East spoke in their daily lives. Recently, there's been a fragment found of an early Gospel of Matthew, and it's in Aramaic. And linguistic scholars have studied it, and they don't feel it's a translation from Greek into Aramaic. They feel it was written in Aramaic, and that's what the early church believed. It would have been written in that language because Matthew was written to the Jews about the coming of their king. Uh, Matthew's full of Old Testament scriptures and references. He assumes that his audience is familiar with the Old Testament. There are more than 50 Old Testament references in Matthew, um, and they are in there to show how Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the coming Messiah. The key theme of Matthew is that Jesus is the king. He is the king, the long-awaited king that Israel's been waiting for. We see in Matthew the kingdom of heaven. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you saw it several times in there. It's at least 52 times. I tried to count it, and I'm not sure I'm accurate, but it's at least 52 times the phrase the kingdom of heaven occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the key themes of Matthew's gospel. It's the same thing as the kingdom of God that you see in other gospels. And that's another way we can know that Matthew's target audience was the Jews. Because the Jews would not say the name God. They would substitute something like heaven. And that's what Matthew does. He says the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven can be defined this way. God dwelling with his people. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. And this begins in Genesis 2. We see it with Adam and Eve, God's people, God dwelling with them. It says God walked with them in the garden. They lived under God's rule and blessing in the garden, in God's place, the Garden of Eden. And they lived under God's rule and blessing all the way to Genesis 3. We don't know how long that was. But it doesn't seem like it took long for them to decide they didn't want God to rule over them. So they chose not to be ruled by God, and they were separated from God. They were kicked out of God's place. They were kicked out of Eden, and they forfeited God's blessing. We see the culmination of the kingdom of God in Revelation 21 and 22. We see God's people, a great multitude that no one can count, um, from all tribes and tongues, living with God. On the new heaven and the new earth, God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. So the entire story of the Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation, is how God is going to accomplish reestablishing his kingdom. It's God's preordained plan. It's not plan B. We're still in plan A of God reestablishing his kingdom. So beginning in Genesis 12, we see the kingdom of God promised. God chooses a man, Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he promised him a place, Canaan, and he promised him blessings. He made a promise to Abraham that kings would be his descendants and that in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Galatians tells us that this is referring to Jesus Christ. So the Messiah, the king who was coming, would be a descendant of Abraham. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see the partial kingdom of God. We see God's people, the Israelites, living in God's place, the promised land. 
living under God's rule, the Mosaic Covenant, enjoying God's blessing when they obeyed. But just like Adam, who was called God's son, Israel, God's son, also failed. But during the height of Israel's history, when King David was king of Israel, God promised an everlasting kingdom to David. This is called the Davidic Covenant, and it's 2 Samuel 7.16. The Lord says to David through Nathan the prophet, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So Messiah, the king who was coming, would be a descendant of David. The idea of a king is kind of foreign to us. We don't live under a king. We don't really know anybody who lives under a king. Um, It seems kind of antique and maybe irrelevant. But throughout history, up until the 18th century, almost every nation had a king. It was the common thing of government. The king was the absolute ruler. His word was law. The king was the one who dealt with other countries. He established his boundaries and protected them. He went to war. He made treaties. The king was the one who made all the decisions for everyday life, um, where you would live, how much tax you would pay, what your position would be. He even had the power of life and death over his citizens. And both in and out of the Bible, we see examples of good kings and bad kings, mostly bad kings, because kings are fallen human beings just like we are. And eventually their pride or their greed would get the better of them and their kingdoms would fall. But even life with a bad king was better than life with no king at all. If you didn't have a king, anarchy would reign in the land, and only the strong would prosper. If you didn't have a king, other kingdoms would invade, and that would lead to destruction and death and slavery. So even a bad king was better than no king at all. We've had some great social experiments in the last couple centuries in life without a king, and they all seem to be failing. Communism has proven itself bankrupt. Socialism is failing. Just look at what's going on in Europe. Even our democracy, I'm afraid, is on its last legs. I mean, when you've got a choice between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, (laughs) I just don't know. (laughs) We've chosen not to honor and obey God. We followed that Romans 1 path. Um, And I'm afraid our democracy may be failing as well. People were, and still are at heart, I think, longing for a king. A king who would bring both perfect justice and great mercy. A king who would shepherd and care for his people. A king who would protect and defend his people. A king who would even lay down his life for his people. The Bible's promised us a king, that king. But in Jesus' day, Israel had no king. Israel was living under Roman occupation. The occupation began in 63 B.C. Jesus' ministry was sometime between the years 27 and 33 A.D. So for about 100 years, Israel had been under the boot of Rome. But for almost 1,000 years up until that point, Israel had been a hot mess. When King Solomon died, Israel split, and there was all kinds of anarchy and war both within and without the kingdoms. They hadn't had a solid, good kingdom since then. And where was God in all this? It had been 400 years since Israel had heard from God. 
The close of the Old Testament was 400 years before this time. There had been no prophets since then. When Jesus arrived on the scene, messianic expectations were at an all-time high. Surely God would send a Messiah to deliver Israel. So Matthew opens up his gospel with the announcement that this king, the promised Messiah, has come. Look at Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> Matthew starts, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the king and the blessing who would come from Abraham. Jesus is the king from the line of David who would establish an eternal kingdom. The Jews would have immediately understood what Matthew was saying here. This is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting for. Now, we've pulled three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, out of the Gospel of Matthew. And we need to kind of get it in context, I think, before we study it. Um, Matthew starts with the genealogy, son of David, son of Abraham, the king is born. And then Matthew has announcements about the king by the angels. He's the son of God by the Holy Spirit. He's come to save his people from their sins. Uh, Announced by the wise men, the king of Israel. By the first prophet in 400 years, John the Baptist, that he is the Lord who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire and will gather his own into the kingdom. By God the Father, King of all the earth, my beloved Son, with whom I well pleased. The King, the Messiah, has come, and his name is Jesus. And then in chapter 4, the King is tested. If you'll flip over to chapter 4, you know that's the story of the temptation. <clears throat> Adam, God's first king, met the devil's temptation in a garden, and he failed. Israel, God's nation of kings, met the temptation in the promised land, the land of milk and honey, and they failed. Jesus, God's final king, meets Satan's temptation in the wilderness, and he triumphs over Satan. He's proved his qualifications to be God's king. And then Jesus began to preach the kingdom. If you look at 417, it says... From that time, from the time Jesus began his public ministry, he began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand, within reach, right here. The kingdom is here. Sermon on the Mount is the next major teaching section in Matthew. And I want you to see how it's bracketed at the beginning, at the end. Look at Matthew 4.23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now flip forward to Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. It's almost the exact same verse, isn't it? That brackets a unit of scripture. We have the Sermon on the Mount, but we also have chapters 8 and 9, which we're not going to be studying. And they're all included in that bracket. So in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. 
And that's followed by chapters 8 and 9, where Jesus demonstrates his power and authority as king. In chapters 8 and 9, he heals the leper, paralytics, blind men, a mute, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, and all who were sick, every disease and affliction. He shows he has the power and the authority over everything human. He casts out demons, shows he has the power and authority over the spiritual world. He calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He has the power and authority over the natural world. He raises a child from the dead. He even has the power and authority over death. Jesus has, as our king, the power and authority over every obstacle the citizens of his kingdom might meet. And it's important to keep that in the back of your mind while you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Surely, this must be the king Israel was waiting for. But Jesus is not the king the Jews were expecting. They were looking at Old Testament prophecy, and they were seeing a king who would defeat all of Israel's enemies, a king who would elevate the kingdom and make Israel the preeminent kingdom in the world. And the Old Testament does indeed describe that kind of a king, and that's who the Jews were expecting. If you've ever been driving towards a mountain range, and in the near distance you see the mountains and you think, I'm almost where I'm going, and you get into the mountains, and then you realize there's this really long plain and another mountain range, which is actually where you're going. But from a distance, it looked like they were the same place. That's how Jews viewed scripture. They viewed the one coming of Christ. They didn't see the two comings with the really long plane in between. Eventually, Jesus will come as a triumphant king and establish his kingdom, and it will be elevated above everything on earth. But that's not what happened the first time, although that's what they were expecting. They didn't understand, although they could have, if they had searched the scriptures carefully and if God had opened their eyes, that there would be two separate comings of Christ. They didn't see a king who would come and die to bring the people back to God and to establish a different kind of kingdom than the one they were looking for. And that there would be a long period of time while that kingdom grew and grew and grew, and then the king would return and gather all his people together into the eternal kingdom. We live in that kingdom on the long plane in between. We live in the already, not yet. The kingdom has come, but not yet in its fullness. We are the followers of Jesus who believe in his name, and we are now the people of God. God's dwelling with us. He dwells with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We live in God's place, which is an interesting place to live in and not exactly what the people had in mind. We live in Christ. Ephesians tells us we're seated in the heavenlies, but we also live in the world which is a totally different place. We live under God's rule and under God's blessing as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are the ones the Sermon on the Mount addresses. We who live in the everyday world and at the same time in the presence and the power of God. So a lot of things have been written about the Sermon on the Mount over the years, and a lot of things have been written wrongly about the Sermon on the Mount. 
Some have said that the Sermon on the Mount is a good ethical teaching, which it certainly is, but that's all they think it is. This is the group of people who think that Jesus was a good teacher, which he certainly was, but that's all that they think he is. We can't pull the Sermon on the Mount out of context. Remember, the next two chapters are full of miracles. As John Piper says, you can't have the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount without having the Jesus of the miracles. Um, So it's not merely a good ethical teaching. When we went to Israel a few years ago with Gracie Van, and as an aside, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go, because it's just amazing to see where all these things happen. So when we went, we had this sweet Jewish tour guide who told us that the Sermon on the Mount was the Ten Commandments for the New Testament. I thought a pastor we know and love was going to have a stroke. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't say, do this to enter the kingdom or do this in order to earn God's blessing. Um, It's not merely a new set of rules. It's not the Ten Commandments for the New Testament. Because the standards Jesus teaches here are so impossibly high, a lot of people think this is for the millennial kingdom, if that's what's going to happen, or the new heaven and the new earth, when Jesus returns as king. Look at um, verse 520. It says, Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones who kept every tiny letter of the law and some things that weren't even in the law, just to be sure they kept every letter of the law. Look at verse 548. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's kind of a high standard. Um, So a lot of people say, well, this doesn't apply to us now because we can't do it. But... The problem with that is the Sermon on the Mount, while there are a couple things written in future tense, is written in the present tense. means it's for now. It's not for then. It's for then also, but it's also for now. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? It's the first public address of the king to his people. It's the authoritative voice of the king speaking to his citizens about kingdom life. Let's start with um, verse 423 and look at who he's talking to. We're going to read through 5.1. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we have two basic groups of people here. We have the disciples, those who follow Jesus, those who were called by Jesus to follow him, and they sit down at his feet. We have the inner circle, and this is the main audience for his teaching. But we also have the outer circle, great crowds of people, and they can also hear his teaching. Um, We've been to the site where we think this was preached. It's on the Sea of Galilee, and it's a natural amphitheater. So his voice would have carried a long way, and great crowds of people could have heard him speaking. Verse uh, 425 tells us the crowds made up of people from Galilee and the Decapolis, 
The Decapolis is 10 cities. They were Gentile cities, east and south of the Galilee area. So some Jews, a whole bunch of Gentiles. From Jerusalem and Judea, those were probably mostly Jews, um, and probably included some of the leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. And from beyond the Jordan, and that's a Gentile area, east of Jerusalem. So again, Gentiles. Great crowds, mixed Jews and Gentiles, probably leaders and common people, men and women. And they were listening to what Jesus was saying. And we know they were, because look at verse 7, 28, and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. He spoke with authority because he has all the authority. He is the king. So although they were not the primary audience for this talk, it's clear that Jesus wanted them to hear what he was saying. And he wanted them to hear because at least some of them, and maybe many of them, would become citizens of the kingdom. And I think it's interesting here and exciting that although Matthew was written to the Jews, so many Gentiles are included in every part of Matthew. It's clear even from the beginning that the kingdom is going to be open to Jews and Gentiles alike. The long-awaited king of the Jews is, in fact, the king of the whole world. So the Sermon on the Mount describes for us what the present kingdom of God is like and how kingdom people will live. How are we to live in this already, not yet, kingdom while we wait for the return of our king? In verses 3 through 12, we have the Beatitudes, and that describes the character and the blessings of kingdom citizens. In 13 through 16, we have the calling of citizens to be salt and light. In 17 through 48, we have the relationship of the citizens to the law. In 6 1 through 7 12, we have the relationship of the citizens to God and to each other. And in 7.13 through 27, Jesus gives warnings to the hearers. Are you with the king or are you against the king? So, are you ready to be both encouraged and convicted? And I mean convicted when I say convicted. Because the Sermon on the Mount will do both. It describes for us the reality of living in the actual world we live in. And being citizens of the kingdom of heaven at the same time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this sermon that describes to us how we're to live in this already not yet kingdom. Father, we thank you most of all for the king, the glorious king who is king over the whole world and the king who is coming. And Father, we can't wait more and more every day. We can't wait for our king to return. Father, we ask your help because we need your help to live as citizens of your kingdom in this world that you've called us to live in and to be in but not of. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.